Darkness cannot drive out the eternal light. A reading from John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. A man named John was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him everyone would believe in the light. He himself wasn't the light, but his mission was to testify concerning that light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world. And in the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize it. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized them to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desires or passion, but born from God. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of the creator's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, Those is the one, This is the one whom I have said. He who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace as the law was given through Moses. So grace and truth could come into this world through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, God the only Son, who is at the Creator's side. He who has been made known has made God known. Glory to God. Well, Happy New Year, church family. It's so good to be back with you. I am extremely grateful to Elisa Aldape for bringing the message last week and to the entire Aldape family uh, for leading in worship uh, last Sunday. Today, uh, sadly, we bid farewell to, uh, to Elisa's parents, Eddie and Macarena, as they head back to Spain. Many of you know that we partner with the Aldapes and Albacete as they do a beautiful work there with refugees and students and uh, people in the crossroads of life. And so we love you and send you with God's grace, you too. Well, now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations and thoughts and aspirations of all the lives and hearts in this room be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers, from the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's pretty easy these days to feel as though the world is starting this new year in a pretty troubled place. It's not hard to feel depressed and even alarmed about the state of our world, especially if we view it only through the lens of news coverage. 
Christ calls us to be clear-eyed about the killing evils of this world and to engage them in the spirit of Christ. God's people do not draw back from the hard things of this world. At the same time, we're called to be clear-eyed about the hope always unfolding around us. And at the beginning of a new year, I almost always find it to be essential for my own sanity to take a moment to name out loud some of the ways in which the world is actually getting better. Several journalists and other writers at the end of 2019, while not in any way diminishing the mountainous problems facing the world at this moment, made a case for the claim that when you take into consideration the long arc of human history, last year was actually the best year on record. And so this morning I invite us to remember a few things in the interest of hopefulness at the brink of this new year. As recently as 1950, 27% of all children died by the age of 15. Today, the child mortality figure globally is right around 4%. In 1981, the year I graduated from college, 42% of the world's population lived in, quote, extreme poverty, defined as by the UN as living on less than $2 a day. Today, that portion is 10% of the global population. Half a century ago, a majority of the world's people had always been illiterate. Today, nearly 90% of the world's adults can read, and the biggest gains have been in girls' education. And so, even though far too many people still live in dire poverty, and statistics are always up for debate, depending on the sources used, and politics will always find its way into the conversation, and eliminating global poverty is anything but mission accomplished, and many of the bad things we worry about are in fact true. Scientists and psychologists, business leaders and economists and other ex experts who rarely agree on anything do agree that life expectancy is up, education is more common, poverty rates are down regardless of where the poverty line is set. I say that today to say that often when evaluating a narrative of a thing, it helps to get up to a high place and consider the, the big picture. Today's gospel text invites us up to a high place. This passage we call the prologue of John is all about the big picture. And by starting his gospel this way, John reminds us that all narratives begin someplace. All stories have a starting point. In the beginning, we hear him say. There's another way to start a story. Once upon a time is a way. Lots of stories start with those words. I could begin my story that way. Once upon a time, an infant girl was born in Columbus, Ohio, the last baby born in the old hospital on Lockburn Air Force Base. That's where my story begins. Or does it? I could go back to the birth of a baby boy in Birmingham, Alabama, the 10th of 11 brothers and sisters to a coal miner and a homemaker. 
And four years later, a baby girl was born in Birmingham. The little boy and the little girl grew up across the street from one another and eventually married in 1958. But really, my story goes back even farther back, involves more coal miners and, and some moonshiners and, and German immigrants and distant relatives back in England and Scotland, and all of those ancestors had ancestors. So where does one story begin? How far would you go back in order to find your once upon a time? Or we could talk about the beginning of our story here. The story of you and me could be said to have begun in an elevator in Dallas in 2015 at the annual Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly when Eric Smith, chairperson of the search committee, asked if we could talk. That was the beginning of you and me, but, but before that there were similar conversations with Jeff Hagray and Jim Somerville and Chuck Poole and Everett Goodwin and Charles Trenum, who served as pastor to President Carter, and John Howell and Ed Pruden, who served as pastor to President Truman. And before that, there were likely letters and or visits on horseback to 11 other men all the way back to Obadiah Brown in 1807, our very first pastor. Brother Brown was a prominent pastor and Washington resident who played a part in the founding of Columbian College, which went on to become George Washington University. And for most of his 43-year tenure at First Baptist, Obadiah Brown held slaves. That's a part of our story we're actively grappling with today, especially in our ever-growing friendship with 19th Street Baptist Church, a historically black church that had its beginning at First Baptist. But even five years before Obadiah Brown, six lay people met to establish the First Baptist Church of Washington City. So is that where our story begins? Is 1802 our once upon a time? That seems an obvious starting place. But you know what? We can go back even farther than that to the first Baptists in America who came from England in the 17th century to escape persecution. Baptists like Roger Williams and John Clark migrated to New England in the 1630s. But even farther back than that, we can go back to the English exiles John Smith and, and Thomas Helwes, who in 1607 fled from England to Amsterdam to pursue religious liberty and began practicing what was known as believer's baptism. So where does our story begin? How far must we go back in order to get to once upon a time? If we pull out our big Christian family photo album, we'll find a lot more faces. Francis of Assisi standing barefoot with birds on his shoulder and a beloved wolf by his side. And Joan of Arc, who preferred armor to petticoats and who led men twice her size into battle. Our story goes back to the blood of martyrs, such as Maximilian, the first conscientious objector, who was drafted by the Roman army but refused to serve. His only loyalty, he said, was to God. This is a great shame and a sadness to his father, a veteran, 
who knew that his son's decision meant death. And at his beheading, Maximilian noticed the shabby clothing of his executioner and calling to his father in the crowd, asked that his own new clothes be taken off and given to the man. Likewise, James the Greater, another martyr, brother of the Apostle John, who was so full of grace on his way to death that the guard assigned to him fell on his knees and confessed faith in the God of his prisoner. And James raised the guard up by his hand and kissed him on the cheek and said, Peace be with you. And then both men were executed together, but their last sweet exchange lives on in the exchange of the peace we share to this very day. The peace of Christ be always with you. And of course, we trace our roots back to Jesus and the four gospel writers who first committed Jesus' story to the written word had to begin somewhere. When Mark told his version, he started with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew, though, went back farther. He began his gospel with, quote, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke begins his account going back even farther than that. In his genealogy, Luke traces his ancestors back to David, then to Abraham, but he keeps going all the way back to Seth, son of Adam, son of God. So for Luke, the beginning of the story is Adam, the first human being in our story. But friends, John does them all one better. John's gospel, as we've heard today, begins not with the first human, but with God. In the beginning was the one who is called the Word. The Word was with God and was truly God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. And with this Word, God created all things. Nothing was made without the Word. Everything that was created received its life from him, and his life gave light to everyone. This week, I have found myself freshly gobsmacked by the mystery and expansiveness of this text. John takes us back to our origin story. The origin story of all that is to that moment when, quote, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the formless void, and immediately the material universe became visible. At creation, God's first priority was to make God's self both seeable and shareable. And the word John uses for this is logos, a, a word from Greek philosophy, which could be translated as the divine blueprint or template for reality. The Franciscan priest Richard Rohr refers to God's loving self-disclosure at creation as the first incarnation, incarnation being a word we use for any enfleshment of spirit, and Paul backs that up in his letter to the Romans when he says, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature 
have been seen clearly because they are understood in all the things God has made. In other words, all we really need to know about God, we can see in the natural world. Some put it this way, creation is the first Bible, and it existed for 13.7 billion years before the second Bible was written. Christ is a word for that divine logos, this deep presence that was here since the beginning. And because of this, and, and, and I love the way Rohr puts it, from the beginning, we have lived in a Christ-soaked world. More than a few places in Scripture, including the first chapters of John, Colossians, Ephesians, make it clear that Christ existed from the very beginning, long before the incarnation of Jesus, the Christ, the divine Logos, was deeply embedded in all things, anointing all things. In fact, the word we translate from the Greek as Christ comes from the Hebrew word mesach, meaning the anointed one or Messiah. And this morning we simply remember that this is the great Christian leap of faith. We daringly believe that in a moment of chronological time, God's very presence was poured into a single human being. They called him in his language, Yeshua. We called him Jesus. Both the human and the divine operated as one in him. And therefore, these also are at work in us. I know this is heady stuff for a Sunday morning the first Sunday of a new year. But it's hard for me to imagine a more inspiring word to launch us into this new decade than the news that our story is broader and deeper and more expansive than we can possibly know. We trace our story, our once upon a time, all the way back to a cosmic event that has soaked all of history in divine presence from the very beginning. And what this means is that God is with you here where it's messy and scary and complicated. Down here in your real imperfect relationships. Down here with your actual neighbors and coworkers and friends. Down here in the boardrooms and classrooms and hospital waiting rooms, in all of these, the beloved is present and has been from the beginning. This morning, we're going to celebrate and mark this gift in a tangible way. Last week, we closed the door on 2019. We released it into the hands of God as we marked the end of another year. Today, we mark a beginning as we welcome another year of life. And in a little while, we're going to be invited again to the table of Christ, the gifts of God for the people of God. This morning also, and you may have noticed already, in the cross aisle are two small tables. And on each table, there is a candle that was lit before worship from the Christ candle here in the Advent wreath. 
And also on each table is a little jar full of smaller candles, as well as two trays of sand. And after you receive the bread and cup this morning and or a blessing, I invite you to circle around to one of the little two tables and light a candle there and plant it in one of the trays of sand. And as you do, I invite you to consider the beautiful reality that your life and the beginning of this new year are bathed in the very same light and love that were present at the beginning. The beginning of all things when the Spirit of God hovered over a formless void. And I invite you, if you will, to let the lighting of your candle this morning be a gesture of your openness to the presence of the beloved in your life in the coming year. One caveat, I want to make it clear, your candle this morning is not meant to be a symbol of your getting your act together in 2020. It's not about you working harder or doing it better. We are lighting our candle this morning simply and only as an act of openness to the presence of the one who loves you and gives you life. What came into being through the word was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not put it out. 